Hello and welcome to Breaking Social. I'm Alex. And I'm Joe. And we're the founders of award-winning marketing agency, Campfire. In our new podcast series, we sit down with a guest to unpick their business journey and find out their secrets to success in branding and marketing. This week, Stephen Bartlett is on the podcast. Steve is the co-founder of Social Chain, a social media marketing agency that in 2021 is set to make over 620 million, and who more recently has been named as the youngest dragon ever on Dragon's Den. He's well known for his podcast, The Diary of a CEO, as well as his ability to master social from both a brand and personal point of view. Steve is a good friend and so we were able to have a conversation with him that not many others will be able to have. We discuss how Social Chain has grown so big and what the most important things are for setting up a successful business, how to master organic reach with your content and the impact personal brand has had on his success. There's even an exclusive that we get out of him. All right, Steve, thank you so much for having us to your place uh, this time. So this isn't going to be for those listening in the Campfire Studio, this is in Steve's uh, in London. I mean, it's very unlikely that people that are listening to this podcast haven't heard a lot about your story. I think they'll exist, <laughs> there'll be a big sort of overlap. Um, but I wanted to go all the way back to Wallpark and the start of Social Chain and what it was like founding Wallpark for you. So could you tell us the story of Waterpark and summarize that and, and tell us why it came to an end? Thank you for having me and thanks for coming. It's um it's nice. I, sometimes I get a chance to answer questions here. Obviously, I'm, I spend a lot of time asking questions here. So it's a nice it's a nice change for me. Um, So to answer your question about Wallpark, I was 18 years old in Manchester. To be honest, I was looking for a reason to drop out of university and I knew I was going to drop out anyway. So sometimes I think if you hear my story, you'll think that I dropped out just because I wanted to pursue Wallpark. It was actually really, I dropped out and I was looking for an idea upon dropping out. And um, I saw that in universities, they still used physical notice boards. I thought that that was super archaic for 2013. Physical notice boards with paper attached to them in an era of the internet. And I think they still do today. And so my thinking was very sort of first principle level was, well, I'll just bring that online. So you could, Manchester Metropolitan will have their own online notice board. And, and and also then when you have these cities where you have three cities, uh, three universities in a city like Salford, Manchester and MMU, there's crossover. So if you're looking for a student to do flyering, that can be from any university. So the whole premise of Wallpark was you post the notice board within Manchester and then you specify which university students it's applicable to. So if you're looking for a goalkeeper at MMU, then you just click, you write your post like a tweet. And then when you before you click send, you click at MMU and then post and it will just be shown to MMU students. So that was, that was the idea, you know, spent a long time getting to the point where I had a team and I built the thing, raised investment and then launched in Manchester and went through all of that battle of figuring out how to become a marketeer, where I learned tons of lessons. Um, started really, really bad. It's, I think one of the most inspiring things I could ever show anybody was just how bad I was at everything. Because people look at you today and they think, oh, look, he knows a lot of stuff and he can speak really well and he's got great ideas or whatever. But that's a consequence of being an idiot and being okay with being an idiot. Also not really realizing I was so stupid, but like it's a consequence of going through that process. Um, it's not like something you're innately born with. And I think, I genuinely say that all the time. I think the most inspiring thing I could show anybody was me 10 years ago. You would think that fucking guy, if he can do it, then fuck, I'm smarter than him. I got better grades than him. I can add up and I can spell that fucking guy. But this guy you look at and you know, you might be intimidated by, but that guy, you know, anyone, you, anyone could eat his dinner. So I did that, Woolpark. And then at some point I realized that it wasn't gonna work. 
for a number of reasons. I really realized that my competitor was still Facebook. And I really learned that when I made these, I was making these Facebook groups to drive traffic to Wallpark. So I was making like any time a student would start at university in Freshers Week, I would own the Facebook group. So like Oxford Uni Freshers, every year, all the Freshers surge into the group to get to know each other before the term starts. I would own the group. I owned all of them around the country. And when I, I would then convert those groups into like buy and sell groups, so when the students had arrived, they'd become like Oxford buying and selling. I'd basically create a wall park on Facebook and it was lit. It was going off. I was then, and this is where the real stupidity comes in, trying to move them from there to my website. What's the fucking point? If, if those Facebook groups, if my website had been as active as those Facebook groups were, I would, be, would have been a multimillionaire by the age of like 19 years old. They were absolutely crazy. There was like, sometimes 10 posts a minute in these in these groups that I owned. And I was desperately trying to move them away from the, the place, the environment where they were natively doing the behavior I wanted them to do. I was tr for, trying to force them to my website to the point where at some point I'd be like, close the group and post a link as the top pin post. You have to do this on Wallpark now. Like, and, and then you reflect and go, well, why were you fighting it? And this is ultimately where social chain came from. I was like, maybe social media is the platform. Maybe that is where, I, maybe I don't need a website anymore to do most of these behaviors, buying and selling and community. Maybe I can just build these um, communities onto social media, which at the time was a really crazy idea, like 2012, 13, told my investors it. They told me to stop wasting my time. Um, literally said to me, like, I'd start up, I was like, I've built all these Facebook pages. I've got, I, I got this Facebook page to a million likes in a day. It's called a thousand things students don't say, just posted things that students would never say. So it'd be like Manchester, students don't say and then it'd be like something that every manchester student knew was like a joke so like, i don't know something that clearly yeah, no yeah. fucking manchester student would love something about the union or print works whatever and then i built this we had all these pages and my investors didn't see the value in it they didn't think social media was interesting told me to stop wasting my time so eventually i realized i had that epiphany i'm like i'm fighting against the way that people want to behave um so I said, I said to my investors that I was quitting. I had a big glass of wine one night, same as like really how I quit social chain, just realized that, you know, all the stars had aligned for me and I just sent the email. That was it. And I, they didn't care about the social media pages. So I took them all and I started social chain with them. And we were, we were talking about this on the, on the train down. Cause it seems kind of obvious now, like if, when people talk about, oh, we started a Facebook uh, page or we started a Facebook group to market stuff. Like when they, when you talk about it in retrospect, mm. it seems so obvious, uh -huh. but Back then, you had people that of notable sort of wealth, or I suppose oh, notable well. in the industry, saying that's a bad idea. Well, everybody, like no one had brands didn't have Facebook pages then. People can't wrap their head around it. You wouldn't have had a Facebook a brand on Facebook. Mm. No fucking chance. Like I remember the meeting. Who was it with? I was going to say Spotify, but I think it, I'm thinking Harry Bow. One of the one of those big brands and I just remember them laughing at me when I was I was talking to them about Facebook and starting a, f a Facebook page there it was you would just not be there as a brand unsafe it was just too unsafe it was you would never be there so this is why and you'll even recall if you can go back like 10 years you could get a Facebook page to millions of likes just by the name of the page mm -hmm. because it would come up in your news feed saying um it would say Joe has liked I know I'm going to be rich one day I just don't know mm -hmm. how and, yeah, then you, yeah. and then it would have the button there for you to like it too. So they were inherently viral just in the title. And everyone was just making these massive fucking Facebook pages with millions of followers and just leaving them. Like when Michael Jackson died, I made <laughs> yeah. a Facebook page, rest in peace, Michael Jackson. And it got like hundreds of thousands of likes. I never did anything with it because what was the point? You know what? 
so that was the that was the moment when it was actually at Woolpark where um, one day I got I'd exhausted all the traditional means of advertising trying to get people to come to my website and um, I found a guy that had a man this is kind of like the genesis moment of all of this is I found a guy that had a Facebook page and he had 10,000 Manchester students on it I went to Piccadilly Gardens gave him 50 quid bought the page off him posted Woolpark on it and the traffic was insane that's where I was like oh social media is much better Bear in mind that same morning I'd been up and down Rushholm and Oxford Street at 6 a.m. in the morning putting flyers and posters up, offering people 100 quid if they signed up to my website. No one fucking signed up. The council rip it down at 7 a.m. So that I'd wasted hundreds of pounds trying to put posters up. And then this Facebook page that I bought from this guy on Piccadilly Gardens, it just like sent more traffic to my website than ever. So I just thought more Facebook pages. And that's like my very, like this is probably one of the like redeeming factors of one of the key things to my success is I'm very just like um, logical and I don't care about convention. I care about truth. So I spent 50 quid and I got more people. So do more of that. And I went in that direction. Even everyone's going, oh, you don't do that. You don't, you know, that's not, it's a weird thing to do. And it worked out in the end. Just was very early in that regard because of that. Yeah, so you you had so much conviction towards that idea as well. And we were just kind of thinking about where, where do you pull that energy from? Because I remember... And this is even two years after Social Chain had started that I joined and you were there just before. Because for context, for anyone that's listening and doesn't know, we used to work for Steve for about four years. We were like watching you do like 11 p.m., 2 a.m., like 3 a.m. You completely poured yourself into the idea of building these social communities, which I guess at this point, investors weren't telling you it was such a bad idea. No, but not, at the not start, by then, yeah, not by Social Chain, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that's where the, the what the real question is, is like, you're at that time where, you know, I'm guessing Warpark had just come to a close at that point and you just started to put all your energy into yeah. social media at that point. Everyone around you is being like, I'm not touching that. You said you just yeah. had a meeting there with Spotify. You were probably like, no, I'm not really going to yeah, touch yeah, that. Yeah. Where does that come from in you where you're going, cool, I'm going to put everything into this then for hours It's a, a really day, fa- a foundational thing that I can just, I view that, what you're describing there, this like, I call it like first principle thinking where if... If it's true, it's true. So like the other example is like university, why I dropped out of university and why at 16 years old, I knew that I I got to the point where I'd figured out I wouldn't need grades because I was able to influence my peers. And these were the people I was going to be adults with. So if I could influence all of them at 15, 16 years old to come to my event and, you know, um, 3000 of them come six days notice and all pay me 10 pounds, adult life is going to be fine for me. So I stopped, literally stopped going to school, get expelled because I figured out that grades actually don't matter before I have like, evidence or regardless of what convention is telling me same with university go to university sit in the room look over she's sleeping on the desk she's hung over the guy at the front is teaching me nonsense he's handing out crayons and telling me to make hypothetical posters i'm looking around at my peers thinking this isn't it and like the, the principles there are like who if i'm going to be an entrepreneur and this business person that i've come here to be who am i going to show this piece of paper to anyway and um is this going to take is if i get the same piece of paper as her am i going to go somewhere good in my life and all of these fundamental principles stack up and then i am at peace with the decision and i don't really care about anything i'm at peace with it my my principles it's true and it's the same thing with the social media early on the numbers were bigger and it was cheaper and it was more effective and regardless of what anyone would tell me I would rather cheaper and more effective. And people like people don't understand that concept what, because you have to be in a in a in a world where everyone tells you that it's just not possible um and it can't happen and it'll never happen 
in order to understand what that takes. Like, it's like the LGBTQ movement, black people being able to walk into anywhere they want now and sit wherever they want. You can't imagine a world where that wasn't the case. It's like, that's why Rosa Parks is so amazing because she was like, I'm not gonna sit where the, where the fuck you tell me to sit. And in, I'm not equating myself to Rosa Parks, but it's the same, like, you have to be in the moment to understand how t tough it was. People, the people were like laughing at, like they would laugh at you. And social media was such a stupid thing, but the numbers were bigger for me. So I didn't need anything else. The numbers were bigger and it was more effective. And it just so happened that we were like a surf surfer out at sea as that wave was coming in and we were just there with our surfboard and the wave was coming in. And it's like blockchain now, the wave is coming in. So choose where you wanna be. And the people ridicule it. Oh, it's a scam, it's this, it's that, whatever. That's probably a good example because we're writing it now. Oh, it's a scam, this, NFT, nonsense, blah, 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 JPEG. But the wave is coming in. And everyone who who is early on their surfboard is going to make, make, you know, they're going to make hay and everyone else is going to look really stupid. Or be so, doggy puddling behind you whilst everyone yeah, else is. Yeah, and then they get a shitty deal and then they, you know, they get left behind at the end of the day. Um, you want to be on your surfboard when those waves comes in. I think about that in all elements of my career now. I think about what waves are coming into shore and like, what is the thing that everyone is saying won't work that is clearly going to be the future? Mm -hmm. Blockchain is clearly one of those things, like the technology underneath it and this the idea of this like trustless world. Um, I'm one of the biggest Ethereum holders in the world. When I say one of the biggest, I mean like top 5,000. Yeah, top 5,000 in the world because I'm so, I have such high conviction for like blockchain. Probably my single biggest position outside of social chain, it's my single biggest position. And I'm I'm working in that space as well because I know that the wave's coming into shore, and it reminds me of social chain. Reminds me of the early days of social chain where everyone's telling you it's nonsense and there's there's polarization on both sides. It's actually fairly, no, I would say fairly late, but the people that really win are always the ones that went five years ago. Mm -hmm. They were hanging out with their surfboards five years ago. Yeah, when the wave came in, and, and it was almost like those guys. It was almost a game back then to them. Like it wasn't. It almost wasn't like making money. They it wasn't yeah. thinking like making money. It was just a cool technology that people were being a part yeah. of. Same way when you're talking about Steve Jobs, they yeah. were just messing around with computers in the garage. Yeah, a lot of them um, did believe in that world. They were like religiously believing in a world where cryptocurrencies and digital currencies, and you can go back and watch Peter Thiel. I think he's up there on my um, bookshelf. You can go back and watch him eight years ago talking about, I think it's like 10 years ago, a, cri a cryptocurrency that will be based on the internet that won't require central banks and governments. And you watch the clip and you go, fuck, like, you Satoshi, like you, he genuinely described exactly what Bitcoin was like 10 years ago. There was a lot of people that believed in that future. It's a very th fine line between a, between being a total idiot and a genius. And the line is like discovered in hindsight where you look back and go, oh, so Steve was right about that social media thing, but you know, could have gone the other way, I guess. That was a great analogy. Someone else was talking about, I genuinely think it was Steve Jobs that was kind of asked someone, would you rather be surfing at the front of the wave or doggy paddling with everyone else? like? Having missed it. There's something really interesting, something really important. Someone asked me this the other day about social chain. They said about, they, they always felt that I had a high degree of conviction around things that I believed. And um, they asked if you, that's something you could teach. And I don't think you can teach someone to have the vision, but I do think that you can, conviction is learned over time. I think conviction comes from a few things. Being a first principle thinker, someone that thinks really logically, because you get to a stage in your thinking, if you're a logical thinker, where there can be no other outcome. Like, so for example, the whole simulation argument, are we in a simulation? Elon Musk explains it perfectly where you go, well, it actually can only be one of three outcomes. Either this is a simulation, either there's a catastrophic event that wipes humans out every thousand years, so, they ne so computers never get to the point that we could 
create a simulation like this, or um, I can't remember the third outcome, but his logical thinking is the reason he's Elon Musk, because he, he builds on these principles and you get to a point where you've cornered the argument and it can only be this. And that's what I do. Like the reason why I was so bullish on like podcasting early on at like social chain or whatever else, or the reason why I was bullish on like the likewise stuff at social chain with the influencer fraud. And you get to a point where all the factors line up and you go, so you've got influencer marketing is a super hot thing over here. You know that in order to generate conversation around anything in the world, you have to take an opposing controversial position. So what's the opposing controversial position around influence marketing? It's probably, and also you know that everyone hates influencers. They fucking hate them. And then um, you build all these principles and you go with, so with all of these pieces, I know that the right message to strike the world with right now is that there's an influencer marketing scandal going on where you are being scammed. And, and, so we go and test this hypothesis. I had this hypothesis that the only way you could really decide it is if the the rate in which engagement arrives is abnormal, if it goes up like a staircase, because there's no reason why it would. I build those pieces together and then you go for it. And when I've got those five, six pieces, I go, this is going to bang. And then I have full fucking conviction because I stalling or not trying ends up being more cost effective than failing quickly. So I'd rather just like run it out there, fail quickly and just blah. And this is a, this is one thing I actually learned from Umar Kamani, a pretty little thing. He his his real talent is he does fail very quickly. Whereas at like Boohoo, you know, an idea might knock around for like nine months and he's got to get through 12 people. They act the cost of those nine months is substantial. It's the cost of those nine months is worse than the cost of failure of Umar Kamani going, Steve, let's do it. We do it. Eh, meh. Didn't do very well. We move on. And and so with at social chain, the part of the reason for what I'm saying like high conviction is because you know that you don't know the answers, but the cost of, of waiting around to, to try and figure it out yourself is higher than the cost of just trying. But that point about, it really does actually fascinate me, that point about like vision and conviction and leadership because great, great leaders do have high levels of conviction. Um, and I think the best leaders, as I actually write about my book, like Obama, they just get to 51% certainty and then they pull the trigger. They don't need to be at 60, 70%. If they can get to 51% certainty, like Obama said to me in Brazil about killing Bin Laden, all I needed to do is get to 51% certainty and then I can be at peace. Um, those are the best leaders. Emotional leaders aren't good, um, aren't very good. The logical leaders, in my view, are the, the very, very best. And I think I'm a logical leader. I think I'm like, that's my print. That's how I work. I'm not sure you can teach that, to be honest. The log like logic, I don't know if you can teach people logic. People have too many biases around fear, which cause emotion. And so I don't, I don't know if you can teach that. They have too many insecurities and stuff. They think too emotionally. So when you think about your, because you're very much in a leadership position at Social Chain, mm. when you think back on your time at Social Chain, what were some of the main takeaways or not even the main takeaways that you had during uh, your time at Social Chain, but now thinking back, is the the way that you led everyone the way that you would do it today? If you could no. start Social Chain again now, is, no, is yes the main No, yes and no. I mean, there's elements and then there's other elements. You go, I wish I should have done that better from the start or you know, even I've like developed in many ways, the way that I am, I've learned more about myself. And I've also learned, funnily enough, I've learned some parts about myself that have an adverse reaction, but a net positive. Does yeah, that make sense? Mm. So, and those parts are good if, you, if you're in control of those parts. And I've learned, so yeah, I've learned loads of stuff about myself. Um, the most important thing when you're building a business at the end of the day is people. And, um, I learned that probably too late. I probably learned that in like year three or something, year four. That actually what I should have really been focused on from the jump if I wanted to be more successful sooner was hiring the best people in the world, not people I knew, not the guy that was available, not 
you know, this person that I walk past in the street or the, that's what you do when you, you start out. You just hire the person you know. Critical mistake, critical mistake. And you realize, as I always say, by definition, the word company means group of people. And so now when I'm thinking about the new business that I'm starting, it's just the best people in the world. And that's that's what a business is. Like I, at one point, I remember when I started my business, I thought it was me. I thought like, I am going to be the reason that if this is successful or not, my good ideas. That's okay when there's like five of you because you can have an influence over like pretty much everything. But when there's like hundreds of people, it's not the case. You are almost inconsequential to a point, especially not, you're operationally inconsequential. You can't go see the clients. You can't manage problems. You can't make finance decisions, every finance decision. So you have to have the best people in the world that are better than you making those decisions for you. That is my single biggest takeaway. If I was to redo, which I am doing now, if I was to redo my company now, I would just focus on hiring the best people in the world. And why the fuck not? When you're young, you don't think you can. You think, oh, no, no one's going to want to work here. What here? In well, that fucking shoebox. When you're talking about drawing in some of the best people in the world. Yeah. If you actually think about, because obviously with us running an agency at the moment, we think about recruitment a lot and how mm. to do that. And the way that you built social chain almost in public mm. and were very open about the way that you were building it drew people to you. In fact, I don't even know how you pulled that, that particular group of people together because- mm. If you look at some of the old photos, it's almost like it's not quite the PayPal mafia, but like yeah, if yeah. you look at like, if you yeah. think about it in social media terms, yeah. it's like where some of those people have moved on to and yeah. what they're doing now is yeah. is like impressive, impressive stuff. Like they're all, most of them are at the front of those kind of waves. Yeah. Well, they were early. And the reason why PayPal was, I think, largely successful is because you managed to concentrate talent. And when you concentrate talent, they actually all learn from each other as well. And they learn, it, it becomes like a symbiotic learning experience. And so early in an industry that went on to be really, really important and all learning from the best in the same room as the best every day. It means that those people are probably better than 99.999% of the population if they go anywhere else. They can go and tell anyone else anywhere else how to do it because they're so far ahead in terms of expertise. Um, yeah, and those people, the early people were really good at social media, but they weren't necessarily good at building businesses. So it was like, we then had to go and find people that were good at running businesses. And yeah, and that was the, the lesson. That was the key thing that I had to figure out. And early on in social chain, there was, especially from what we saw, there was that concentration of talent. In your mind or in your words, what would you... Where do you think that attraction came from for those people? All of it, all of the allure. It's the same. It's the same. Um, it's the same thing. It's like where where did our clients come from? Mm. There was just a magic about social chain. There was just like and every everything you touch. You walk in the office, you what go on LinkedIn. It was just everywhere. Head of happiness. What the fuck is this? Mm. It was just everywhere. And all of that came from first principle thinking. It was just kind of reimagining the way that everything should be done. And that's why I always go back to that. It was like just foundational. We didn't necessarily do things the conventional way, but that results in an unconventional and probably therefore a more compelling um, end product, whether it's like how the office was or, you know, if you spoke to someone at Social Chain, like in those, especially in the first like four or five years and you asked them about their job, that they were just electric about it. And it was like they were working with all their best mates, but they're also working with the biggest brands in the world doing the most, you know, some of the most advanced work in the world. It was just all there. And... You know, people tell their friends that everyone's uploading on social media. If you take a photo in the office, you're probably going to hire someone. You know what I mean? Just from how it looks. And all of that mattered. When we, we always used the slide as the example because it was such like an iconic thing in the early days. The slide came from naivety, but it turned out to be genius. Mm. Like it was like, 
idiots with money that are like <laughs> I was trying to work out how much that must have cost 13 okay. grand <laughs> yeah. like you don't buy a 13 grand slide before you buy chairs you know what I mean you gotta buy desks first and then you buy the slide if you was have that the first <laughs> yeah it came before the desks and chairs uh, so there was a couple of people working in it for a while like in the ball pool um but you, but it was it was naivety and naivety is another form of first principle thinking in the day and age because when you don't know the answer because you're you're stupid because you're naive you think of a new one and that's why naivety is a real blessing this is also why young scrappy naive startups can displace big incumbents because they just didn't know how it was supposed to be done and then so they looked at the problem with fresh eyes and created a better solution and that's what we were doing like, oh wouldn't it be we just literally said to the first five people what do you want in the office you'll pick one thing hev was like basketball hoop i said slide dom said mezzanine floor like and that's what we just what do you want oh yeah we'll do it you know what do you want and well we were we turned out to be our our office clientele we turned out to be our the demographic of our team so we built an office that was designed for the demographic of our team if i was 47 years old and this was my seventh company there's no fucking chance i would have done that I'd be like how many desks can i fit in this <laughs> yeah. and like where do the bars go in the chains and like this the, the how, where do they clock in and out but, but that naivety created something that was more compelling for the era in which it was needed so in 2015 or whatever it was that was the business to create in 2015 for people that were 22 years old and for clients that wanted to walk in and work with 22 year I remember Vice said to me one day, they came to the office and said, they looked at the office and they tried to say to me, like, because it was so crazy, aren't you like pulling the wool over client's eyes or whatever? And I was like, what you, I, was, I remember saying, this is on YouTube. I was like, the contradiction would be if we said we were different and you walked in the door and this wasn't different. That would be the contradiction. Then I'd be pulling all over your eyes. If I said we were this young, innovative company and you walked in, it was like carpets and fucking the little roof where you can push the tiles up. Like then, then we'd be pulling wool over client's eyes, but we are consistent. Every fucking touch point here is social chain. And um, yeah, and it, this is, and this comes to the point of like, what happens when you remove that founder? You lose the thinking, you lose that way of thinking. You can't copy it. Social chain was a manifestation of my perspective on the world. Like, obviously, so much of it is, like, crafted by the team members and their departments and how the work is done and how Fisher made the videos and how Mike built the strategy department and how Dave runs the finance team and all those things. But the the fundamentals are crafted from the fact that when I was 18 years old, I worked in a call center and it fucking sucked. And... Jenny over there gave me shit every day and I couldn't do anything about it because I wasn't the boss and she made me feel like shit. So not, and she, and then I worked in San Francisco at 18 years old at Bebo and someone left a pizza box on the side and everyone in the morning got an email at 2 a.m. saying who left the pizza box on the side. We'd been up till fucking 2 a.m. working on building this app. Dave, the best developer we've ever met, left a pizza box on the side and you've, you've caught, you've chosen to make that our bullshit this morning. Like that's the problem we're trying to solve as a company is the pizza box. That's why at social, I was always like, no, none of that bullshit. No passive aggressive post-it notes, who drank my milk? No, who stole my pen? Where's my charger? Cause that would came from that experience. And that's what social chain was. It was like a manifestation of that worldview. So you say, what happens when you remove that worldview is you get a different business with a different worldview based on whoever's creating that worldview, right? So you mentioned then about a lot of the attraction early on coming from basically everything that was in the office. It was the way that the office looked. It was essentially a manifestation of all the things that you felt up until that point going into the office. Mm. How much of a role did your personal brand play in that? My personal brand played a significant role in bringing attention to the company at all levels. So whether it was in investors originally, we the reason why... George Koffler and co invested 
was because they'd heard about Social Chain. Um, Christian Grabel messaged me and they Social Chain had that buzz in the industry. The buzz comes from winning lots of great clients. A lot of that came from two things really, personal branding, but really also having a really compelling story in the, in the space. This whole like kids that can make anything trend, social media Illuminati stuff, like really leaning into that was um, critically important because the only thing that doesn't sell is indifference. Like if it's like the least profitable outcome, I'd rather people hated us or loved us than just really felt vanilla about us. So we always lent into that. I remember going up on stages and really trying to scare the audience that we were fucking, and I'd see the tweets after. And in those early days, you'd get some really like, this is awful, but they were tweeting. Mm. You'd get, oh my God, this is the most mind blown. And then you get, you know, Coca-Cola walk up to you. And Coca-Cola originally um, met me at a talk. Boohoo, originally Richard came to a talk of mine in the marketing director Boohoo at the time, came to a talk and met me after coming off stage in London. And a lot of our key clients, especially in the early days, like I remember asking A and Lucy and someone else, Sam Bird, to make me a pie chart of where our business, where the money that hit our bank account had originated from. And they came back to my desk with a pie chart and it was 70% personal branding, like the origin of the client. So met like Boohoo, like met them speaking on stage and then da 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 and that's when I really knew that it was important. I, But it's tough when you're trying to build your personal brand in a company because you don't want your employees to think that you're a narcissist. Mm. And there's a balance here. And this is why I think it was quite important. F- I really don't care like that much, but I know a lot of people struggle with it. This is why I'm talking about it. A lot of people don't want to have a camera following them through the office as they talk into it. I really don't care because it, I mean, we all got to a point where we knew the impact it was having. Like the, the, the new business team like would say to me, they walk into the room and feel like Jesus because everyone knows social chain. And I went to Logitech and pitched there. And at the end of the pitch, the 10 people in the room asked me for a photo. It's like, it's not, you know, it's quite easy if, if to win the business. If, if Even even at the beginning, was was that the case then? No. So it's like, obviously it started with talks and then you started yeah, your no, videos. Not the start, no. Well, one of the really interesting things, and a lot of the reason why I was, one of the real upsides of building a personal brand was at the start, I was paying to speak everywhere. I was paying five grand to speak at all these marketing conferences and they were returning great business for us because of that compelling story. And when you flip it and you build a big personal brand, you get paid to speak everywhere, which means you're getting paid to do new business, which was great. But at the start, no, it was an uphill battle. And I had like, what, 10,000 followers and I was just a kid on social media talking a lot and coming up with like cliche quotes. Now you're at like 1.3 million recently, like 13 Wembley stadiums. Yeah. Which, so a lot of people will think, well, it's like, all right for, mm. for Steve, because he's got like 1.3 mm. million followers, so it'd be easy for him. But if someone was starting from scratch, or if you were starting on zero now, mm. what platforms would you want to build your presence on? And what would be what are you trying your to strategy? Yeah. Shall I just give you the answer for you? <laughs> you can give me the answer for me, yeah. yeah so no, I'm not, I'm not going to build a personal brand, but we're trying to like the- the you're doing ad- a podcast, you're building a personal brand now. That's true. <laughs> yeah, all right, yeah. Well <laughs> do me. So, I run a social media marketing agency. If I was trying to build if I was trying to build my brand to, to build a service business like Social Chain or other in twenty twenty one, I would probably do what I'm doing now. Like for me, podcasting is actually it's like it's not the first thing you do. Because unless you've got an unbelievable killer format, it's um it's like lower down the funnel, right? But because podcasting is so like saturated, you have to have a really, in my view, a really, really killer compelling format that can stand on its own if you don't have a pre-existing audience. Because as we know in the in the podcast stores, there's, there isn't like high levels of organic discovery. Like to get featured in the podcast store, you have to submit something to Apple and basically tug them off. Mm-hmm. Trust me, I'd know. 
I've got to call them tomorrow. And um, outside of that, the only way to get to get any kind of presence in there is by going up the charts, which means chicken and egg. How do I get the charts if I, especially now they've changed the charts, it's a lot harder to move up the charts. So if you don't have an existing audience to drive to your podcast, then um, I would not do the podcast thing first. I'd go and try and build an existing audience somewhere else. And so then you go, where, where, where can I build an existing audience? LinkedIn's very easy. As I mean, everyone's doing that. I really don't rate what, what everyone's doing. And like, um, I need to think a little bit more about LinkedIn when I get some time, but um, LinkedIn's very easy. The reach is fairly easy. And you don't, it's not contingent on you having an existing high following follower base. So you can do like, everyone can go get like viral quote unquote, just by writing the right thing at the right moment. Instagram also, I think, is um, the second place to play. The content across these platforms has to be different. This is why on Instagram, I'll talk about relationships. I will never post about relationships on LinkedIn. I will never post any like fluffy relationship quotes on LinkedIn. And and what I'm doing is I'm building a big top of the funnel audience to then drive down into um, certain categories, whether it's my Telegram group, or whether it's my newsletter, or whether it's the podcast. And I consider those platforms that I've just named, those three, Telegram, like newsletter and podcast, a space where you own the audience. And I think that's so critical these days with like the death of organic reach. You have to, you have to, has to be somewhere where you bring them into a space of your own or else Facebook are just going to fuck you 50% every year on your organic reach. But yeah, like, and let me, let me talk about the content. To be fair, it just has to be, it just has to be interesting. Really, really interesting. And the truth is, of the matter is, it takes real guts and a great sense of, like, it takes guts and fearless to make really interesting things because no one else is doing it. There are some, like, so you'll, you'll see the odd person on LinkedIn, like, that is a really going for it in terms of compelling content. There's this one guy on LinkedIn that I see sometimes who cusses in everything, slagging off everything to do with agencies. I don't want to work with him, but it is compelling. Mm. Like, I'm not going to call him and, you know, book him as a client. What Social Chain did over the years was, I thought, quite compelling. We were always inventing something new. We we're always first. We we're always fearless. There was always an announcement. We we're always launching something. Um, we we're always attacking something. And I think that was that's the key. That's what I that's what I'm going to do in my next chapter with my next business. And when you were building that personal brand, obviously at the same time you're building Social Chain, mm. and you've got all of those problems to deal with. Which until I think we started. Uh, what we're doing we we couldn't even fathom like how many things that you actually have to deal with and plates mm. you have to spin at the same time um was there ever a point where you felt like building a personal brand on the side because like i said we remember the 2am videos mm. being done with the auto prompts and yeah. all that stuff yeah yeah was it was there ever a time like in the beginning where you thought like this is this is just like too hard or this is too like, overwhelming or anything like not that not really so so i would do my job during the day Sometimes that meant I would wear a microphone all day in the office. But then when everyone went home at like 10 p.m., as you know, I would sit in the office and then start doing the personal brand stuff. So I'd do the personal brand stuff with sometimes with Ash or Dodds or whatever till the early hours of the morning sometimes. If not then, it would be when I was on the road. So I'd go and do whatever I had to do in some country. And then when I get back to the hotel room, Dodds goes, we need to film seven minutes for this or we need to do a video. I need you to answer this question. I need to make, you know, whatever. And I just did it because... I think hard work matters and it was working. And I also know, I tend to have this like fundamental belief that if, at any point when something becomes very, very difficult, you'd imagine that a lot of people quit at this point. So you'd imagine that there was a lot of people that weren't running a business and also investing heavily in their personal brand because it was really difficult. 
So that's also a really good thing. If I can just hold myself in that difficulty, it's like when I go to the gym every day, if I can hold myself in that moment of difficulty for as long as I possibly can, I'm probably going to get rewards that most people don't get. And then it's not even the rewards in terms of like monetary rewards. It's like the learnings. I learned how to speak and communicate ideas and use social media and how to build my personal brand. I, 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 you know, and that paid dividends for the rest of my life. It's like, I suffered for seven years really fucking badly. And not like mental health or anything, just really fucking suffered. Like had no life, was flying 50 weeks a year. I lived in New York, I was there for four weeks in 2019. Just always flying around, living in airports, just working really, really hard. And the consequence of that, that massive bet I took on myself was by, you know, now my age, I'm very wealthy and I don't have to work ever again if I don't want to. In hindsight, it's a really good fucking bet to take. It's like, would you go to, would you go to, I wouldn't say jail, but would you go to jail for six years to then be, to have tens of millions for the rest of your life? Which six? And also it wasn't jail. It's a, it was, I think that's the thing, the jail's probably a no-go. An, yeah. <laughs> yeah. an extreme boot camp, like yeah. for six years to then be f- completely free to do whatever the one you want for the rest of your life. So that's basically the trade I made. And I'm 28 now. I quit before, I quit when I was 27. And I'm like, fuck it, I'm free forever. Those things that you talked about then, like you were going on so many flights a year, I remember at the time it was almost it was almost talked about like it was something that you wanted to do or like yeah. people like it was almost it's something weird. to admire. Um, would you say the same now? It's weird because you've removed my purpose now. So when I think about what I fly around the world now, I'm going for what? And it's funny because Sophie, my PA, she asked me shortly after I'd quit, "Do you miss flying around the world?" And I just and when I view, when she said that, I viewed myself doing it now, and I thought, "What's the fucking point?" But that's obviously because the purpose has been removed. I was, I felt like I was, I had a sense of mission before, and it was a mean, it was a means to a really clear end, which was I was gonna be myself and make myself free, and you know. So whenever I get that sense of purpose back in the work I'm doing, I'm sure I would fly around the world for it. You see it with Elon Musk; he wants to take us to Mars, and he's living in a 50k hut in Boca Chino, whatever it's called, which has one room in it. This is a guy with a sense of purpose. If you said to him. It remove SpaceX and go. Would you go live in a in a fifty k Boca Chino hut in the that they've sent that they literally wheel around? He's living in a shed, second richest man in the world right now, living in a shed. That's a man with purpose. He's not living there for fun. And that's what was me on those flights. I was like, yeah, I was sleeping in the airport most of the time, but that was a man with a sense of purpose. And I'm sure Elon Musk feels like he doesn't feel like he's suffering in the moment. But in hindsight, you do look back and go, that was fucking crazy. I was walking through an airport the other day, and when I landed in some country. And I remember thinking, I was looking at the airport, I think, fuck, it feels like I'm at home. Like just that late night, it's dark in here and there's no one else in here and you're just trudging through there, pulling your bag. I thought, this feels like home. I was like, I've got flashbacks. Because it had been so long since I've been like in that dark airport at night. Got flashbacks. I remember thinking, fuck, man. It was almost emotional because I was like, fuck, man, you gave everything. I texted my girlfriend and I said, I said, I said to her, I was like, oh, man, just walking through this airport. It's like giving me like uh, flashbacks to how hard I worked for that period of my life. You don't realize it at the time, but just sacrificed everything. And the, the bit that makes me emotional is because as I said in the show, it's like, I'm free. It's worth it. In Diary of CEO Live, you made a point of saying past you wanted what present you has right now. Yeah. Do you sort of heed your own advice? Do you hold that true in yourself? Um, yes. On that particular point, yes. Like I'm well aware, I, I, it's quite unavoidable to me that I'm living. So I mean, we don't. I don't think about it every day, but 
But I have a lot of moments very often where I realise that I'm actually living the dream that I always wanted to live. Like, I fucking am a dragon on Dragon's Den. What the fuck is that? I used to watch Dragon's Den, like, every day. I've watched every episode, the fucking Irish one that's only online, all the Shark Tank ones, the Australian ones, it's also called Shark Tank. I've watched them all. I, mean, I was obsessive about it, but I also was a kid that dreamed about being a dragon one day. And I was a kid that dreamed about having millions of pounds and being free and... Weirdly, it's so weird. I dreamed about writing quotes. I remember seeing quotes online and being like, "I wonder if people will quote me one day." I never, I never said that before, but it's, it was a weird, weird thought I had in Croatia. That thought of when I was younger, I used to say to myself, "How do you get quoted? Why? When do people start quoting things you've said?" I wonder if people ever will ever quote me one day. It's like my fucking Instagram is <laughs> just all quotes now. It's fucking nuts. I have those moments. I go, "No, this is clearly the life that you always, always dreamed of living." And even when I was. 12 and 10 i you know i'd pretend i'd won the lottery because my mum had a lottery addiction and i'd pretend i'd won the lottery and i'd go and i'd spend five million <laughs> on the internet and it was just this like unspendable amount of money like i'd be there be like find the house and the car and i'd be like what now toys and i'd like like and i'd, I'd literally get a piece of paper and spend the money i've just spent one million on a house toy da, 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 da. and i'm like oh, five million if someone ever gets five million oh my god God, they must be euphorically happy. They must like, it's just too much money. You just dip one big party with all your friends where everyone gets free toys. Like, this is it. This is it. This is that. I'm living that life. And quite honestly, I think anything beyond here is more than I imagined. But you get to reimagine again. You get to be a kid again and you get to re-dream again. So it's like a new set of dreams, a new set of goals. They're bigger, they're more, you know, they're more in tune with what your capabilities are and they're more ambitious, they're more terrifying. And we go again. So you talk about then about sort of your journey from everything that you, you sort of sought out to want up until this point now where you feel like you've got everything that past you wanted. Mm. I think it'd be fair to say, would you agree that personal brand has played quite a big part in that journey to that point? Yeah, for sure. Do you think you'd be here or somewhere close if that personal brand wasn't where it is or there at all? I think, I think it's like a snowball rolling down a hill. And all of these things are like intrinsically connected. So if social chain got bigger, my personal brand got bigger. If my personal brand gets bigger, then I'm more likely to be invited to be Dragon's Den, which means my personal brand gets bigger, which means my businesses get bigger. And it's all just intrinsically connected. Me being a dragon now is making business so, so easy. When you want a meeting with someone, people will meet you, oh, he's a dragon. Which, and then you go, okay, well then I'm gonna achieve more. And then if I achieve more, my personal brand gets bigger. And it's all intrinsically connected and always has been. Like the bigger social chain got, the bigger my personal brand got, and then the easier business became, which meant that bigger social chain got, my personal brand got. And it's, that, and it's that's why I think about it like a snowball rolling down a hill. It's just building momentum. These pieces are all intrinsically connected and you're feeding all of them. You realize that they're all connected. So you're feeding your business, you're feeding your personal brand. Um, yeah. And so do I think I would be here now if I didn't, if people didn't know who I was? Probably, well, definitely no, because I mean, even me being sat right here, like I'm on a podcast probably want to be in your podcast because of what I've achieved. My, what I achieved was a consequence in, in some degree of, of my personal brand. But even me being able to speak on this podcast is a consequence of my personal brand um, experience, having spoken for so long, for so many years on every interview and every channel and everything. Um, so it's all interconnected. It's hard to remove a piece without understanding the consequences it would have. Um, do I think I'd be way less successful? Probably. And largely actually, because one of the things personal branding did was it taught me, how, as I say all the time, it actually... Probably maybe the most lucrative part of building my personal brand was learning how to speak and communicate ideas. Like I've always been doing sales since I was 16. I got my first telesales job at 16 years old. Um, probably don't sound like what I look like, which is quite interesting, which, which really helped me at 16 because I sounded like this at 16. 
So when you call Dorothy at 9 p.m. and try and sell her windows and doors, like, she doesn't know if she's speaking. And my name's Stephen. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It kind of helps you. So, um, but it really, that was really the thing is you learn to speak and that translates to when you're speaking to your team, when you're speaking to clients, when you're selling visions on stage, um, gives you a great sense of confidence. It also, one of the uh, another, other sort of unintended consequences was personal branding forced me to package my ideas in succinct, compelling ways whether that's because I've got to write an Instagram quote every single day at 7 p.m., which I've not done for a while, by the way, like they're just regurgitated ones from years ago, but um, I had to write an Instagram quote at 7 p.m. every day. So you've got to sit down and think of an idea and you've got to make it 280 characters, all because everyone's shoving a microphone in your face every five minutes and they're asking you about motivation or love or whatever. And you've just got the snippet. It just exists there. So if you ask me about anything to do with social media or love or relationships or this or that, I've got the answer and it sounds great. And it's and that was a consequence of just being forced. It's like with most things in life, when you hold yourself in that position of learning for long enough, come out the other end and you're like, wow. And that really is like a really underrated part of personal branding is just forcing yourself to, to learn how to communicate and to understand your own ideas. You talk about quitting quite a lot and you've got a framework for quitting in the book mm. but and there's a lot of people that i think that can relate to the feeling of quitting something but maybe not something as that takes as much time and as much energy to get moving as a company like mm. social chain especially the size mm. of social chain what was that like? What was that feeling like? How did you come to that decision? Did you use that framework or was it much yeah. more complicated? Well, it's actually much more simple. I had to then make the framework afterwards to try and explain in a, when we talk about these logical principles, the like logical principles that would lead me to quit. The framework's in hindsight. I don't like look at the framework and then, yep, Steve, it's time to go. I just get to a point where I'm like, weighing on balance, this doesn't make sense anymore. And once you get to that point, um, you truly get to that point, I guess that's where like the courage, if it doesn't feel like courage, I talk about this in the show, it feels like the opposite of courage. Courage would be staying. It's like, and I don't have that kind of courage. So just faith in myself that, fuck it, I don't need this. And to be fair, it's funny because the difficult thing when you build a business is you feel such a great sense of responsibility. It's like flying a plane. Like, as I say in the show, like I was, I felt like I was flying a plane. I was the pilot. I had 700 passengers or 500, whatever it was, all these passengers in the plane. And as the pilot, you can't ever, you can't, you know, quit before you land. So what I, I described this to Dom one day. I said, you have to be really, really selfless the whole time you're building the company. Everyone's problems land, lands on your desk. If this person's arguing with that person, you know I've, I know about it. I'd never say it. I'd know everything. This person fucked them and they are arguing with them and this person's mum scammed this off that person and this person's, and that one's going there and that one's gone to jail, da, 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 all this kind of, you know what it all, it all, it's always your problem. And you're, you're so selfless the whole time you're building the company because you have to deal with everything. Someone's not happy, oh, come up with Steve. Come have a chat with Steve. Come on, we're going to the lodge. Let's have a chat. What's up? Oh, you really so you like you don't like it here. Oh, okay. Oh, let me try and persuade you. Know, you do that for seven years when you've got your own problems to deal with and you're trying to figure out life yourself. And then at the last hour, you get to be selfish when you say, I quit. And you go, I'm done. None of this is my problem anymore. And I'm jumping out this fucking plane. And everyone goes, oh, you can't fucking jump off. <laughs> and that, that I said, that you've got to be really self, you're really self, selfless for seven years. And then at the last minute you go, I'm done. That's me. And yeah. And you've got, you've got to find that. You've got to be able to get there and just be really selfish and go, this isn't for me anymore. But up until then, you're the opposite of that. Everything's about everyone else. Would you say that you felt a bigger weight 
lift because I can imagine the way that you spoke about that. That's very that feels very freeing in a weird way. If you're if you're being sort of selfish in that situation and not thinking about you know the others and it's and it, the focus is on your well being and what you want. Did I you feel? I just was thinking that through. Then and I think I'm wrong. I actually think I was selfish the whole time, and it was in my interest to be selfless. So that's still selfish selfishness. I was selfish the whole time. It, the reason why I went and had the meeting in the lodge with someone and tried to solve the problem was because I wanted a good outcome for me in this business, well, the business which would be a good outcome for me. So at the very end, I was also selfish, selfish when I realized that it no longer made sense to put in all this effort to get the returns I wanted to. So in fact, you know, I was selfish the whole time, but it seems the other way. I was selfish the whole time. I think everyone is. It's not like saying, I don't give a fuck if people think I'm selfish. Everyone's selfish. Uh, fucking that's how human beings work like even when they're giving they're being selfish because it feels good yeah you know what i mean charity feels good that's why we do it so sorry what's the question my question was going to be did you feel sort of freer in that moment or in the moment that you realized that you were sort of rich beyond what you thought where you thought you could be i mean if you're rich but you've got bullshit you're not free um so I definitely felt freer when no one could call me with problems. And also just like no one could really call me. I just like lost the obligation to have to respond to anything. Fucking great, fucking great. And when you're broke and you're dealing with bullshit, it's tough because it's prison. Like you can't quit because then you're just broke. <laughs> yeah. And then you're gonna have to go through bullshit to try and not be broke anymore. So you might as well just stick it. Like in the early days when I was broke and there was chaos, well, I'm trapped. I can't quit because I'm broke. So I have to carry on. But when you're when you're like rich and um, you have bullshit, then it's optional bullshit. <laughs> you don't have to be dealing with this shit. So that's when life gets much better when you don't have to deal with the bullshit. And at that point, I didn't have to deal with the bullshit anymore. To be, to be fair, I, yeah, I was gonna be fine regardless. Um, I wasn't really rich. When I quit, I wasn't rich. I didn't have a million pounds when I quit. I hadn't sold shares in social chain, so I, I wasn't rich. Um, but I was going to be fine anyway, I had money. So yeah, but I just didn't want to deal with the bullshit anymore. So one thing that you talked about in the Diary of a CEO show, mm. uh, the live show, was that moment when Social Chain IPO'd or maybe thereafter when you maybe were able to reap some of the benefits of that seven year long, almost suffering that you called it before, um, that you went through when building that business. But you said when that moment came, you felt somewhat empty. Uh, could you explain that or expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I think it was like, um, the anti-climax of that always believing that being really, really rich would make me really hap no, happier. Because right. I was happy. This is the the weird, like, asterisk. I wasn't uh, unhappy when we IPO'd. But the expectation of being... This is the thing. Expectation makes people really unhappy. It's like at social chain. If someone thought they were going to get, like, a 4K pay rise, whatever, and they got a 3K pay rise, they'd be fucking devastated. But if they thought they were going to get two and got three, they'd be really happy. Like the difference between like expectation and reality ends up being like the dissatisfaction. And that's what it was for me. I was expecting that day to be so much more, so deep inside of me because that kid that was, you know, pretending he'd won the lottery and spending the money was just like, oh my God, one day. And that kid that would watch his parents screaming at each other about money we didn't have, we always thought that money would just make you way happier. Like really just throw your happiness into like euphoria. And I just, it was just, I woke up and it was just another day. And it was nothing. It didn't didn't matter. It didn't matter at all. 
And you think, well, then what have I been doing all this stuff for then? What's the point? Why am I going to work every day? What's the point? Why am I dealing with all this bullshit? If it, it doesn't matter. And then I'm, well, I really had this moment quite early when the Hut group started talking about buying social chain and I remember going home into Ancoats and just like, I'm maybe 24 years old and just doing the numbers and thinking, well, I can buy a really big mansion now. So I'll look at mansions on Rightmove. And I sat downstairs on Rightmove looking at mansions. And I'm like, okay, got auto trader, look at Lamborghini. And I was thinking, looking at these Lamborghinis in this mansion, thinking, well, if I buy a mansion, then I'm not going to see any of my friends because I'll be so far out of town. Buy a Lamborghini, it's really bad to drive. I like my car now. So what's the point? Plus, I lose all my friends because I have to give them the give give these guys my business. So I'm like, what's the point of selling this? And that caused a real existential crisis for me for about six months because I didn't understand didn't understand what I was what I was working for. If it wasn't for money, because that's what I'd been told. That's what my insecurities told me. So that's why that day was was just really confusing. And I remember walking to work that day and I was listening to Kendrick Lamar's Money Trees, looking up at the. Beetham Tower and remembering that I used to dream about being able to live in there one day when I was working in these call centers at Cheatham Hill. Like just that moment of taking you, it not only made me present, but it took me back to being that 18 year old kid. And I could finally see the distance between where, where I was and where I, where I come from and where I was now. And you never see the distance when you're building a company because it's just one step, one step, one step. Then people come along and they go, oh, you must be so proud. And I'm thinking oh, for what? One step. And they go, look, you're so proud. Look what you've done. I go, fucking shut up. Like, what, for one step? And, but but that t- was a moment that took me back to the beginning. I was like, whoa. Beetham. And then Money Trees, Kendrick Lamar, because when I was walking to Cheatham Hill to do that fucking shift at Late Rooms, the night shift, I would on- basically only listen to Kendrick Lamar's Money Trees. And it's actually hung up on the wall over there, the lyrics of that particular song, because it says like, um, I've been hustling all day, this away, that away, through canals and alleyways. And it says like, I, basically money trees are the perfect place for shade. And for me, what that said was I've been working really, really hard and like financial freedom is the perfect place to finally relax. So I u- always used to listen to that. It used to really inspire me because I used to dream about being financially free and like being successful. So on that day, the fact that song played took me back and I was there where I was in Deansgate, just tears running down my face. And I was like, fucking hell, wow, amazing. Crazy. So cut from then to now where your sort of snowballing personal brand yeah. and career has led you to Dragon's Den. Mm. What was that process like? Because I remember even back in the day, we were all sort of talking about that we thought you, we did think you were going to be a dragon. There was mm. like, it'll end up on Dragon's Den, something like that. Mm. So what was that process like team, and what actually. was that like? I said, I want to be a dragon. I said it three years, two years ago. I said, I want to be a dragon. And then uh, two months later, Dragon's Den emailed me. This was like two years ago. And I responded, I said, guys, remember last month I said I wanted to be a dragon. I said, look at this email. It's like, hi, BBC Dragon's Den, would like to meet you. And never, nothing ever transpired from that. Just like a nice meeting. They wanted me to do another, they wanted me to come up with my own show at the time. And I was just kind of bored of that shit. Like these production companies emailing me, asking me to come up with a show idea for them. Fuck that. So I just, no, stayed in touch. Um, Channel 4 approached me and asked me to do a show on Channel 4. It's my own show. It's called The Profits, ran for nine years in the US. It's a successful show over there. And um, thought about it, said, you know what? Yeah, it's like Gordon Ramsay, but you're but for business. You go into businesses, you turn them around and maybe you invest in them at the end. So I agreed to do it. And I was, you know, last summer planning planning that and working with Channel 4 on the show and the production company. And um, I was in Marbella for my birthday with my friends this time last year. And I did the audition for The Profit while I was in the villa. I remember doing the, remember Sophie setting it up upstairs and they were like, yeah, we want you to do the show. Met them in London for breakfast, all the executives of Channel 4. 
then I flew to Mykonos for my birthday. And then BBC called me and they were just checking in. And I said, oh, I'm just doing this. I'm going to do the show with, with um, Channel 4. And they're like, don't do it. I probably shouldn't say this, but I, I'm sorry if I've offended someone. I've broken some rule that I'm not supposed to say things. They called me and they said, um, they said, don't do it. They said, let's um, let us speak to you on Monday. Don't don't sign the contract with Channel Four. And I said, okay. And then on Monday they called me and said, well, well you know, we'd like like to we'd like you to be a dragon, um, and but you you know can't don't do the Channel Four show, and then you you'll be a dragon. And I spoke to my my friends about it, and I asked them to vote. Just the people that were with me in Mykonos. I said, everyone will vote. Which show shall I do? Channel Four or Dragonstone? And it doesn't really matter what they said because I was going to do Dragonstone anyway. But it's nice <laughs> to, for it to feel like a democracy. Sometimes. <laughs> no, they no. I think five five of them voted for Dragonstone. One of them was on the fence a little bit because doing your own shows a risk. You know, it can flop or it can be really really great. But Dragon's Den is like an institution. It's been on TV for like 15, 16, 17 years. Show, show I've always watched. Very kind of easy to do in terms of you sit in the chair, you say a couple of things. So the other show would be have me running around the UK and all sorts. And I just, I felt like I had a responsibility to do it for me, for my generation, for people of color, for whatever, I f for people of this industry, of the modern like tech, social media world. I just felt like... You can always do that first and do something later. But I felt like I had a responsibility to do that. And yeah, the kid in me wanted to do it. So I told them I'd do it. That was it. We talked a little bit about blockchain and NFTs and things, et cetera, et cetera, which is essentially everyone has their own ledger. Mm. So it removes the sort of Middleman. single responsible party for what's yeah. going on. So I was thinking about that and and brands nowadays in the sense that brands were almost like the core gatekeepers for their message and they could use advertising platforms to directly send a message to one person and then that was it. That's what you thought about that brand. Mm -hmm. But now a brand's image is almost decentralized now and everyone is responsible for it and everyone has the opportunity to amend or challenge or correct a brand's message. Mm. I think it's more that the what is capable of happening now because of social media is instead of just a brand saying a message and everyone have their own divided opinion and maybe yeah they talk about it amongst their four friends or five friends that they see that week mm. what can happen now is that a certain response comes back online mm. and a wave of people can get behind that message that now there's this other big message that is challenging their initial one mm. that everyone can see that sometimes does spread beyond an oh, echo like chamber. The reply, like the top comment. Yeah exactly or you know something that goes viral on Twitter about a certain brand in response to something they've done Mm. How do brands navigate that now? Because that was never a problem, but now it is. I think maybe, I mean, this is this is kind of like a, probably just a self-awareness um, point about brands. I, t I typically see this happen when there's a, a lack of understanding of self-awareness. So when someone is, uh, you, what you're talking about, when, the, when someone gets ratioed in like a top comment or, you know, a big brand that in the fast fashion space might, be saying, oh, we're doing a recycling campaign and then they get ratioed. It's usually because of some kind of contradiction. So I think having, I think there's a couple of things. I think the first thing is I would just advise brands to have high degree of self-awareness and not to not to be so attached to who they want to be, but actually to create from a place of who they actually are. And I've actually sat in the room with brands who've told me about their eco campaigns that they want to launch when they are literally the worst. In, it's like Shell sitting you down and being like, we're launching an eco campaign. It's like, I've, I would name names, you know the brands I'm talking about. 
And then um, the other thing is I would I would advise brands generally when we think about being cancelled and getting ratioed and whatever to avoid um, the moral high ground as much as possible because the moral high ground is the, the also the point of greatest exposure to attack. So I would avoid the moral high ground. Don't try and be uh, with the most ethical this, that and the other because um, in, unless you really, really can back it because you you are so exposed to attack. And I just think about rap music. It's such a clear inspiration for me, like how rappers can be so misogynistic and vulgar and rude and all this and everything they say, but we, we clap them down the street. Whereas if a CEO said that, or if anyone else in any other walk of life said the things that rappers say, they would be canceled and never work again. But but in that industry where, where no one the people don't take the moral high ground, they don't get they don't get the backlash. Um, something I think about a lot now because I know I'm going to get canceled at some point. You know, is is what it is. Um, I'm a bigger target now because the Dragon's Den and the Daily Mail are going to want to write about me a lot. And um, probably never going to work with Jackie. So I just well yeah, <laughs> I just try and avoid the moral high ground, and that's why that's why I swear on the podcast and talk shit about myself a lot because it's defense. I just don't want to be perfect. I'm not Marcus Rashford. I'm not feeding the kids. Well, I am in Indonesia right yeah. now. I actually <laughs> donated a lot of money to the kids in Indonesia, but um, I'm not, do you know what I mean? I'm not doing the school dinners. You know what yeah. I mean? So don't be surprised when you, they catch me coming out of, you know, the club. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? So it feels like a much nicer way to live. It's freedom. Um, and brands fall into the same trap as well. They kind of like build. And that's, what, that's when it becomes super risky on social media. I've seen some of the, the world's most ethical brands fall tragically, especially around COVID when they had to furlough people. And even like Liverpool Football Club and stuff, like they they came off really, really badly because they, yeah, they t- they've spent so long telling you they're perfect. Mm. We've seen it with um, beauty brands recently. Mm. A lot of beauty brands. There was one uh, video that came out called Save Ralph, which was about a, it was kind of like a cute story about a rabbit, a stop motion rabbit that was put together by Ricky Gervais and uh, a load of other um, noble people. It went viral everywhere on TikTok. It's like, ban this brand, ban this brand, cancelled, cancelled, every single beauty brand that came up. So it's just, it can just change like that. And you've got to be so fast uh, to to either respond or uh, change your strategy. Um, so there was a rabbit video made by Ricky Gervais criticizing the use of makeup on rabbits. Yeah, it wasn't even really criticizing it. That was what was interesting. It was kind of like, here's what happens. It was the life of a rabbit. And he was kind of talking about how no makeup on it. humans are it's worth it because you guys get to look great. (laughs) So like, like, there's a couple of things here. The first is, yeah, you can see that coming. People have been talking about animal cruelty for a long time. The second is once it happens, there's not a lot you can do. There's not a lot you can do. I wouldn't bother with the, oh, we're going to donate a thousand pounds to rabbits. Like I wouldn't bother. Like if you, you have to then make long-term decisions. There's all the like, oh, donations, we're going to do like Black Lives Matter stuff. It's all nonsense. Like you, you have to then as a brand, and I spoke to like the heads of Coca-Cola, they called me when the Black Lives Matter stuff because I said, what should we be doing? Like, tell us what we should be doing. Um, it's you've got to check, make sure your home's in order first. Similar to Black Lives Matter, when that happened, I remember the like the heads of Coca-Cola called me and we had a Zoom call and they were asking like, what, what, what should we be doing? What should we be saying? What's the statement we should be leading with? You know, and my top line advice to them is you've got to have your home in order first because you'll become a contradiction. How many black people are in this call? Zero other than me. Where is your, what's your diversity like in your, inside your company? If it's crap, just shut the fuck up and work on that. Don't donate a thousand pounds. You know, I'm not saying that that's what it's saying, but that's what typical companies do. They're like, oh, we'll just, you know, virtue signal our way out of this one. 
with when so when it happens when you're that beauty company that's been cancelled because of a Ricky Gervais rabbit video don't feel the need to to immediately be perfect the next day and to be fair most of the time it makes sense to just let these things blow over thank you so much for coming on Steve and for being so present in the in the interview and the podcast as well because you know you've got so much going on well thank you for having me um it's always really really fascinating just to connect really to people that understand me a bit better and that understand my journey and that were there and i think your perspective isn't the one that i had and also like a different perspective on me i learned i think i've learned so much from hearing people that worked with me talk about me to me things that i would never have known like i've learned way more I've, it's helped me become way self way more self-aware hearing what you think of me this is the diary of a CEO. I hope nobody's listening. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Steve, for coming on to the podcast and best of luck with Dragon's Den and the new ventures. Thank you to everyone who listened to this episode of Breaking Social. Make sure you subscribe to us so you're notified when an episode drops. And if you want to keep up to date with what we're doing at Campfire, make sure to follow us in the socials in the show notes. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode.